Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Elon Musk is, I think, a generational thinker. And one of the things he talks a lot about is first principle thinking. And that concept of first principle thinking is essentially taking something that's really complex and boiling it down to its individual parts. There's an interview he did where he was talking about SpaceX when they were trying to start the company and trying to purchase the materials to build rockets. And either no one would sell them these rockets or they were just outlandishly and prohibitively expensive. And the example he gave for first principle thinking was they stripped a rocket down to what are the raw ingredients, what are the raw pieces of that, the materials, and then they did the math on the cost of that, and then the cost of the equipment, and then they decided, hey, we're just gonna make them ourselves. And that's a, a pretty basic example, but I remember when I started at Tesla hearing that example, and it was like when you have somebody around you who's describing something, and you're like, I've always believed that, but I've never had the words. It felt like that. I felt like I've always tried to think that way, but I didn't know there was a name for it. And so I think that concept of first principle thinking has helped me figure out how to learn from people like Elon. Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. Through interviews and case studies, I examine how transformational insights have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthrough moments teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. Today's guest is Chris Maddox, an incredibly talented strategic executive that is truly one of the best leaders I've ever met. I was fortunate to work closely with Chris when we worked on the same team at Solar City and then Tesla. In the show, we talk about how I went out of my way to recruit him onto my team because of his stellar reputation and proven track record. Chris not only far exceeded the reputation he had built, he continued to build upon it and I had a front row seat to watch his development to become a truly world-class leader. Chris is a born problem solver with a true gift when it comes to critically thinking about how to strategically approach just about anything. His smarts are only outmatched by his heart as he cares deeply about people and the human connection. I trust Chris as much as anyone I've ever worked with and I can't think of very many people who have as high a moral compass. His high level of integrity and set of core values shines through in just about everything he does. His teams love him, his peers adore him, and his leaders can't live without him. Trust me, I know this as well as anyone. I'm so impressed by Chris that if I were building a team, he would be the first person I would hire. 
He's that amazing. As if I didn't build him up enough, on the show, Chris provides many thoughtful insights, including how working at Tesla put a name to something he had practiced for a really long time after hearing Elon Musk describe the concept of first principles thinking. We also learn what he did as a third grader to begin his journey into sales and what lesson he learned while working as a photographer to supplement his income while running a nonprofit. Chris shares his approach to problem solving, how he creates team culture, what traits are most important for a successful leader, and even some common pitfalls he sees many leaders make. Chris is highly intentional and leads with authenticity and humility. He reveals his approach to time management, including the art to say no that'll help us be less reactive by being more intentional with how we design our day's activities. We also learn how a serious health issue gave Chris perspective on his own life and mortality. As you can see, this one's jam-packed, so please enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Chris Maddox is our guest today, and I'm so excited to have you on the show. I just can't say enough good things about you. I had the good fortune of hearing about you first through reputation, and everyone that I met raved about you and said that I needed to meet you. At the time, I was producing a show on leadership and the core fundamentals of what it takes to be an effective leader at Solar City. And one of the areas that you were well known for was time management. And I think the reason you were so well known for it is your team was highly effective. You were top 10 in the nation in almost every metric. And one of the things I know you focused on is how you allocate and spend time on the right activities. And so I invited you to come be a guest on a show to give some of your insights and some of your tips and tricks as it relates to time management. And I instantly just absolutely loved you and just thought, man, I need to surround myself with this guy because he is just the type of person that others should model themselves after if they want to be successful in the role as a leader at Solar City and a leader just in general. And so it took some, I would say, vision casting and it took a bit of work but I did finally end up recruiting you onto my team to be the trainer that would, on a weekly basis, onboard and train our new managers at Solar City. And I'll let you tell the story a little bit, but I'm so happy that you said yes and said that, in fact, you would join the team and be a part of the, the work that we were doing. And since that time, you and I have just had so many amazing experiences. It's almost like I I could take this whole episode and just talk about how amazing you are. And I'll just share a couple things and then I'll let you tell your story. But first and foremost, you're a good human being. And that means a lot. I don't say that lightly. There's a lot of great people in the world, but you care about other people and you're a selfless human being. And 
you're always going to do the right thing. And I think that the judge of someone's character is what are they going to do when no one else is watching? And you're the type of person that's always going to do the right thing. You have a very high moral compass. You're highly ethical. And again, you're not about trying to beat other people out at the expense of them. You're about elevating other people to help everyone get better. And so that's that's one huge thing that I think of when I think of you. And then the other thing is your mind. And you have, I don't know if it's just a gift or something you've developed, but you have this gift for thinking about how to tackle problems in a strategic way that I've just never seen before. And I've worked with some amazing leaders and some incredible thinkers. And, and a lot of people are highly strategic. You hold the bar that I just haven't seen anyone reach. And so I'm just grateful to know you and to have you in my life as a friend, as somebody that I've gotten a chance to work closely with through the years. And I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you, Billy. I'm glad to see that your ability to lay down an impressive introduction hasn't waned since we stopped working together. Very kind. Thank you. Well, it's well-deserved. You obviously had an impact on me, and I know you've had an impact on literally hundreds, if not thousands of people. Actually, I know there's thousands of people that have been impacted by you and the work that you've done. And so for those that don't know you, why don't we start with just giving us your story and your background and sharing a little bit about what you've done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll be honest. What's your story is a dangerous question for me. I'm definitely the uh, the kind of person who would rather have a five hour conversation on the back patio with a, a cigar and a bourbon than you know a small talk conversation with lots of people at a party. So I'll give you the short version of that, and then uh, feel free to ask where you want me to expand. But my story, I guess, it starts with where I'm at right now. It's easier to go there and go backwards, but. I am married to uh, my beautiful wife, Teresa. I have a five-year-old daughter, Ainsley, who literally just started kindergarten yesterday. Absolutely incredible personality. Best thing I've ever done on this earth is, uh, is contribute small amounts to who she is. And I'm currently at a new venture. Just started a new role at a CBD company called Centuria Foods that I'm pretty excited about. My story before that is honestly, all over the place. I'm definitely not the kind of person who knew what I wanted to do right from the beginning and has been on a straight path. There is a lot of diversity in my history, both from a personal standpoint and a work standpoint. So maybe I'll I'll start there and just say, where would you like to take the conversation? So yeah, I mean, you've had a lot of different industries and careers. Why don't you share, just give us a snapshot into kind of the different jobs that you've had and how one sort of led into the other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if we're not qualifying jobs with a W-2, I will say that I grew up in a family where the entrepreneurial spirit was definitely encouraged. And I can go all the way back to third grade when I noticed a little supply and demand. Basically, the way that the story goes is my parents ordered one of those big packs of pictures from the school pictures. You know, there's 40 wallet size, you know, some four by sixes, eight by tens. And I started realizing that when people came over to the house, my mom would give him one of the pictures. And at the time, my dad had a business within the house. We had a lot of neighbors we were close with. So people were coming in and out. And I realized maybe I can sell these instead of her giving them away. So unbeknownst to her, I snuck in, took all of the pictures out of her file cabinet, went into my bedroom, cleared off an entire shelf of the bookshelf and displayed all the pictures in the shelf as if it was a sales case. And because I didn't have access to glass to put over that case, I took Saram wrap, stretched it around the bookshelf. <laughs> and then whenever someone would come over, I'd walk them into my room. 
I'd show him the shelf and say, what size do you think would work best for you? And literally would try and sell pictures of myself. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. And the saran wrap as the glass is classic. You've taught me as much as anyone. It's the details that matter, right? <laughs> In fact, that is true. You've obviously known that though since childhood. So what a great story and one that I haven't heard. So I appreciate that. And so that was an early childhood memory. I'm sure you you, you can take some insights away from that. What, what did you do? What was your first job? Yeah. So, I mean, over the years, I definitely, you know, would do anything I could growing up, you know, lemonade stands, things like that to make a buck. But my first official job was right before I turned 16, the summer before that, I worked for a company that did events. And so it would be everything from parking attendance, setting up, taking down, helping with security. It was not glamorous work, but a good friend of mine was a year older. Um, so he was able to drive. He worked at the company and he pulled me into it. And for about six months, it was long hours. Usually the days started with a, a 4 a.m. alarm clock and you know me well enough to know I'm not a morning person, uh, but I think that that set the tone for a work ethic that was a really valuable thing for me. You know, moving forward, I attribute a lot to my friend who, uh, who who connected me to that job. Isn't it interesting how each sort of leg of our life or season in our life, as I know you like to call them, that you do learn something from each of them and the individuals that you encounter. And we are a product. I say this all the time. We're a product of our experiences, and the the more experiences we have, the more we grow, the more we develop, the richer and fuller our life is. So curious, as you look back on your life and you sort of reflect about the jobs that you've had and the things that you've done, and the purpose and intention behind this show is to talk about insights. And so when we have an insight, it's it's often very sudden that we have this deep and, and profound understanding of something that's happened in our life or something that's happening in our life. And it's usually something that acts as a catalyst or almost a pivot point in our life that as we look back, wow, had that not happened, had I not had that learning, had I not had that, that insight, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And so I'm wondering if you could go back and kind of think through either the jobs you've had or the experiences you've had and think through what insights have really made you the person you are today. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. And I think there's probably a lot more than I could identify just you know, off the cuff right now. Over the years, the jobs progressed from that to, you know, as a, a manager at Best Buy in high school for four years, first business trip happened when I was 16, you know, flying to a different state. That was a, a big deal at the time. Worked as a personal banker at Chase for a while. There's a whole story to why I left that, that, you know, maybe is a, a part of the conversation later, but that path changed into photography and nonprofit. And then that eventually changed to Solar City and Tesla. So, there's definitely been a lot of changes. And I think that, you know, I'd really categorize the idea of insights into two things. One are those insights that tend to take a while to saturate. You don't necessarily notice that they're, they're being developed when they happen to you. But as you look back at your life and you look at those seasons and you're right, I love that word seasons. You realize that something profound changed during that time period. And if you have the ability to take the time to reflect and think back, I do think you can draw valuable insights. Um, the second insights are the ones that I think are really stark. There's a lot of contrast and they kind of hit you over the head. It's the things that are, you know, job changes, um, new relationships. You can pinpoint a moment and you realize as it's happening that, um, that something profound is happening. And so I guess before getting into, getting into any specifics, I would just say that that's how I would categorize and look back on them. 
Yeah, and I think that's a great, that's an insight in and of itself, right? Because insights don't all look and feel the same. They don't happen in the same way and the effect is not the same. It, it, it does change. And some of them could alter the course of your life and meaning like almost make like a hard turn, either a 180 degree turn or even a 90 degree turn. And then another type of insight, it, it accelerates where you're already headed and it just increases the velocity and, and at pace which you're striving toward whatever destination you're headed toward. And so, you know, you, you talked about photography. You, you shared with something with me in the past about your experience with photography specifically and some insights you had regarding perspective. I wonder if you could share that and, and kind of give us a little bit of flavor of, of how photography ended up actually playing a role in the way you ended up leading others in future roles. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't go to school for photography. It wasn't something that growing up I knew I wanted to do. You know, the saying is that a need or necessity is the the mother of innovation. And ultimately that's what pulled me into photography is at the time when I decided to move into the nonprofit realm, I needed something to subsidize that. And photography was something I was interested in. I'd done it casually. And so I learned through, you know, self-teaching and then eventually found someone who is an incredible photographer in the Phoenix area and essentially told him, Hey, I'll carry your bags. I'll do the grunt work. You know, let me shoot with you and let me learn. And so that's what we did. And really, I think there's a ton you can learn from photography. I mean, you're, you're an artist as well, Billy, you know, your ability to tell stories and, you know, work within the realm of video podcasts. I think there's some similarities, but I think that the artistic side of the brain or the artistic work in photography was so different than other things that I had done that it really stretched me. And one of the things that I learned from that photographer was that anything you're shooting, whether it's a portrait session, a wedding, it's really important that you're thinking as a storyteller, you're not there to just take pictures. And as cameras get better, I think that people attribute good images to the equipment all the time. You'll hear people say like, oh, that must be a nice camera as every photographer out there is cringing. But what really makes a good photographer is the ability to tell that story, anticipate moments, and allow someone who wasn't part of that story to, through those images, step into it and feel those emotions. And the advice that I gained from this photographer was super simple. It was every time, go tight, medium, wide. Tight, medium, wide. And it's so simple that it really took me, gosh, probably you know a half dozen sessions shooting with him, weddings, things like that, to really understand what he meant by it. And ultimately what, what that mechanism of tight, medium, wide taught is you start tight because at the beginning of whatever that is, that's where the emotions are strongest. The, the bride coming down the aisle, the father seeing the bride, the special moments, you start tight. You want to, you want to make them feel the emotions. You then go medium and that allows you to capture a little bit more of the environment, but still be close on the subject. And then wide gives you context from a story angle. And I think over the six years or so that I was really doing photography as a full-time venture, that became ingrained in me. And so afterwards, as I moved back into more of a, a business environment and a corporate environment, I don't know that it was a conscious thought type medium and wide, but what it taught me is when I was trying to solve a problem or tackle something and I wasn't able to move as quickly as I wanted, or I didn't like the results as much as I would hope to, to step back, start, start in the weeds. If you're not getting where you need to step back a little bit, get a different perspective. And then eventually from there, you need to step back and look at the context of the whole situation. 
And I think oftentimes as leaders, as we're problem solving, we all have a natural place that we feel comfortable. We either love being in the weeds and sometimes we get lost on the big picture or we love the 30,000 foot vision, um, but we don't understand, you know, boots on the ground, what's happening. And so I think that that, that strategy or that principle helps a ton in business because it's a good reminder that you can't live in one stratosphere. You have to move back and forth. Let's dive in a bit deeper. And I love this concept because it is so true that we often get either mired in the details or we're flying too high and we're not able to get the kind of perspective necessary to actually solve the problems that we need to solve. And so I mentioned earlier, you just got a knack for thinking strategically. Your brain is wired in such a way that it seems to come natural to you. I I don't know if it does, in fact, but let me ask you first and foremost, one, does it come naturally to you or have you worked at it? And if so, in what ways do you think about solving problems strategically? What's your approach? You know, obviously shared one aspect of that, which is looking at it from different angles. But I wonder if you could talk about how you solve problems and and how you approach strategic thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's absolutely a natural component to it. I think that it's something that to some degree was an ability that I had that I didn't realize was valuable or I didn't realize I had it until later in life. That said, I think that a lot of people have a lot of abilities like that that can take you maybe a little bit above an average performance level, but to really take it to a high level performance, I think you have to hone it and you have to focus on and you have to learn and be humble and be open to learning. And I would say that there's been a lot of work over the last probably four years specifically to figure out how to sharpen that craft a little bit. You know, working at Tesla, Elon Musk is, I think, a generational thinker. And one of the things he talks a lot about is first principle thinking. And that concept of first principle thinking is essentially taking something that's really complex and boiling it down to its individual parts. There's an interview he did where he was talking about SpaceX when they were trying to start the company and trying to purchase the materials to build rockets. And either no one would sell them these rockets or they were just outlandishly and prohibitively expensive. And the example he gave for first principle thinking was they stripped a rocket down to what are the raw ingredients? What are the raw pieces of that, the materials? And then they did the math on the cost of that and then the cost of the equipment. And then they decided, hey, we're just going to make them ourselves. And that's a, a pretty basic example. But I remember when I started at Tesla hearing that example, and it was like when you have somebody around you who's describing something and you're like, I've always believed that, but I've never had the words. It felt like that. I felt like I've always tried to think that way, but I didn't know there was a name for it. And so I think that concept of first principle thinking has helped me figure out how to learn from people like Elon. And then also just how to add more structure and order. Because I do think that a natural tendency of mine is to get distracted. You start solving a problem and there's a million ideas. And so how do you focus that and prioritize that? And that's really where I think results come from. I love it. First principles thinking was huge giant light bulb that went off in my own brain when I first heard about it. And like you, it just makes sense on so many levels. And it it sounds to me like you had already believed in this philosophy, although you maybe didn't have a name for it and maybe weren't able to articulate it in the way that that you had heard it when you you heard it while working at Tesla. Let's dive in a bit deeper on the first principles. And then I want to get more into some of the other work you've done over the last four years to sharpen that strategic mind of yours. You described it, but just to kind of reiterate and make sure that it's super crystal clear what it is, let's start there. And then 
maybe give an example of how you could apply first principles thinking, kind of like you did a moment ago, but I, I do want to get a, maybe another example just to make sure it's clear for the audience. Yeah. You know, I've become a big fan of training through contrast. And this is something that I think that a lot of us learn from whether we know it or not, but it's not just what is something, but what is it not? And I think a good way to talk about first principles to say, what is it not? And what it's not is iteration. And so often how we solve problems is through iteration. We take a solution that already exists and then we iterate on top of it. And that happens in business all the time. So we may take a a program or a process or a, a tool that has been used for a long time, try to apply it to a new problem, and then we just try and tweak it. Or we try to change 15% of it, 20% of it. And the difference between that and first principle thinking is first principle thinking doesn't say, what are we currently doing to fix this and how can we change it? It says, where do we want to be? What does good look like? And then it strips that down and it deconstructs it to the raw ingredients. And it says, what do we have to get there? And you basically build it from the ground up. So in one of the ways I heard it described, and I, I love what you just said, is is we're not going to iterate on something that already exists. And, and what, what Elon said is, don't reason by analogy, right? Mm, don't compare mm-hmm. yourself to another company. Oh, what does this company do to build their vehicles? Therefore, let's just take what they do and iterate on it or make it better or make some improvements on it. I think the philosophy with first principles thinking is, yeah, there might be some ways that it's being done currently. That's okay. We don't necessarily need to take those ways. Now we might, but we don't we don't need to. In fact, let's think about it if those didn't exist, if we're just going to use first principles thinking, if we're just going to think about it from the beginning, and really there's fundamental truths, right, in life, whether that be physics, um, you know, that you you really can't change or some other areas that are kind of those are truths, fundamental truths. Take those and then build upon those to get to your destination. So let's let's talk a bit more about kind of strategy. You said in the last four years you've been working on it and you, you cited the exposure that you had to first principles thinking as one area. What are some other areas that you've grown or you've developed your own strategic mindset? Yeah, I mentioned a minute ago prioritization. And I think that that's a big, a big part of where I've been pushing myself to get better because you can have a great strategy, but when it's time to execute it, if you are getting distracted or you're not prioritizing correctly, it can quickly unravel. And one of the things that I've really learned a lot from is just working with some really good program managers um, over the past three or four years and learning how to use tools, things like Gantt charts, program management software, to where you put together not only the strategy, but you start building it backwards to say, okay, if this is good, we've now defined what good or what excellent looks like. Let's start building step by step by step by step how to get there. And I'm not naturally a step-by-step person on the Myers-Briggs scale. I'm a high N, so I'm definitely that more big picture thinker. Um, But what that's done is it's forced me using tools like that to get more into the weeds. Again, that, you know, tight, medium, wide, it's forced me to not just stay wide, but to get into the weeds and to be really thoughtful, not only about where I want to go or what the strategy is, but what's the work at each stage that needs to be done to get there. So when you start looking at a problem, you're tasked with an assignment or a project, or you're actually given a a specific, hey, this is a problem we're seeing. What's your approach? How do you think about it? And how do you go about putting together your ideas and your initial thinking and then walk us through your process? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a couple things that I do initially. One is I want to understand what the current solution is. Most of the time, if there's a problem we're trying to solve, there's something similar that's been addressed and solved before, whether that's a tool, a process, et cetera. So what are we doing now? And it's not that I'm going to use that to iterate off of, but I also think there's a fine line of not throwing away good work that others have done because you may be able to pull from that in some ways. So I think a good understanding of that. The other thing is it's often tempting to just move really quick to developing a strategy or a solution. And one of the things I've learned to force myself to do is to slow down and to have as many conversations as I can with people who understand the nuances or the components of whatever that that problem is we're trying to fix. And so, you know, if you look at something like I'm trying to do now, which is building out a sales organization, that gets to be a lot more conversations and a lot more complex. Uh, I'm talking with folks everywhere from the scientific side of the business, trying to understand more chemistry principles, uh, all the way to the IT and the technology side and everything in between. If this is a small project, it might just be one or two people that you're having a conversation with. But essentially slow down enough to not just understand where you are and where you want to go, but to get some of those um, deep principles from people who have a lot of expertise that you might be able to pull from before you put together a solution. So understand what the problem is, what you're trying to solve, understand what solution is in place currently, what what is the current method that exists that is attempting to solve that problem, and then having the conversations necessary to ensure that you're talking to the right people and and not doing it too quickly, right? Going at it too quickly could make decisions happen that are not necessarily the smartest or best decisions. They're just the fastest. And so slowing yourself down is another part of the recipe. What else, what else would you say you do as you start to kind of look and tackle the problems or the project, you know, you said you're building a a sales team now, what else goes into when you look at either a large problem or a large project, what else goes into your thought process? Yeah. Well, I'll start by double clicking on the idea of defining where you want to go, because I think oftentimes we're set up to fail from the beginning because typically this comes from a a boss, a supervisor, uh, an executive within the company where they'll say, hey, we want to go here, fill in the blank. And oftentimes the way that they state that includes the solution or the implied solution. And so I think one of the most critical steps is to understand what is the actual end goal. And so, for example, if we're talking about building a sales organization, the end goal isn't to build a sales organization. The end goal is to have a group of people at the company well-equipped to generate revenue and a great customer experience. And sometimes when you can take that extra step towards something, it gives you a clear understanding or a clear focus of where you need to go. I totally agree. Why don't we get, go down the route of just kind of giving some examples? Because I think giving some examples will help illustrate just how, how important it is to think about it in this way. Why don't you, do you have some examples that would be helpful to kind of illustrate that point? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that we could talk about anything I've ever done career or otherwise and probably dig into it. But, um, you know, some that come to mind, we talked about my season where I was doing photography. I would meet with brides consistently um, as they're looking for a photographer for their wedding. And often you sit with them and they say, yeah, I'm looking to hire a photographer. Well, that's not the end goal. The end goal is somebody that can be part of the wedding, not detract or distract from that experience and deliver an incredible story through prints. And so that's what I talked to them about. And I said, hey, here's a difference in me and others you'll talk about. 
is I don't think you're actually looking for a photographer. I think you're looking for this. And I create a vision. They say, yes, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Or when I was at Best Buy and a supervisor in the computer department and training people, as Best Buy would say it, the goal was to hit a quota in a certain amount of revenue selling laptops, printers, things within that department. That wasn't what I told the team the goal was. The goal was to create a customer experience where not only they would buy the computer, they'd buy all of the accessories they need, the warranties, and they would be handled in such a way that when it was time to buy another one, they'd come back. I love that. Do you find that when you took that approach that it resulted in the intended effect? Yeah. I mean, so much comes down to communication. And I think part of starting off with the right goal in mind not only allows you to more effectively build a strategy to get to that goal, but it more effectively allows you to invite others into that vision. And if we don't drill down in the right way to define the goal, everybody is creating the own, their own narrative within their mind on how they think that we should get there. So I think being really specific and um, thoughtful on defining that goal has a lot of really positive outcomes. Do you have any other examples that would help uh, kind of further illustrate the point? Literally, I think we could talk about anything. Let's talk about this. I mean, I think this podcast is an incredible tool. It's an incredible resource for a lot of people. And I think that you're really gifted to be able to deliver something like this. When you sat down and thought about, you know, where do I want to go with this? What was that process like? Yeah, I think for me, the initial part of it was thinking about what I want to share because it's so important for me that whatever I'm sharing, I believe in and I'm passionate about it. And if it's something that I'm not passionate about, I'm not going to want to do it. So for me, it started with what information do I want to get out to the people? Because I I know that I knew going in that I was going to do something podcast and video related. And it was just a matter of what is the content. And so I spent the last 10 years working in development and learning and specifically with leadership and people wanting to advance in their career. It just stood to reason that I focus on something that I have experience with and that I feel a passion for. So that's kind of how it evolved and came to what it is today. So that's a great example because you didn't just answer with, oh, I decided that I wanted to have a podcast that people could listen to on their drive to work or on their headphones. You talked about why and how you wanted to build it. And I guess that's really what I'm getting at is as you're defining the goals, It's not just what you're going to do, but it's how you're going to get there. And by getting clear on those, you strip it back and first principle thinking allows you to have a more holistic way to come up with that solution. And I think that part of that is what is the culture? What is the attitude that's going to be part of getting to that solution? And I think that this is where some of the leaders that I've worked with in the past who have been less successful, I think it's where they fail is I think that they get so caught up in what is that number? What is that target? Uh, What is that binary idea that has to be satisfied that by not fleshing it out further and putting more thought and intention into the end results, they end up bypassing some really important things such as culture. Yeah. You know, you talk about culture and I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that I I wanted to, to talk about during our conversation today. And when you were on my team, I kind of pulled you away from being a leader of a larger team to being more of an individual contributor, although you ended up growing and having a larger team. But it wasn't until the last, I would say, eight months or so of us working together that you ended up getting a very large team. And I got to really see firsthand how you build culture within your team. And let me just say, I was 
blown away at the culture that you built. And not only did you have a great culture, but the team that you assembled was fantastic and they absolutely love you. To this day, if we were to go to anyone on your team and ask them about you, they would just rave about you. And I'm curious, what's your approach to building the type of culture that you've built and how have you really started to define your approach to building culture within the team? You know, I don't think that culture is something that is step one, this, step two, this, step three, this. And that's because culture is, it involves people and anything that involves people is incredibly complex. So I think that part of building a good culture is the right disposition coming into it. And I think that it's a balance of having very clear understanding of what you absolutely want to be part of that culture and what you absolutely do not want to be part of that culture. But then as part of that, it's inviting those who are part of that culture with you to fill in the blanks and to create the flavor and to create some of the unique pieces of that. And so, you know, for me, uh, when I have a new team or when I'm trying to build culture, I usually try and define what does good look like and what will we not do again, back to that contrast training. So talking about things like integrity, servant leadership, collaboration, and then also in the same breath, talking about what we won't be greedy with our ideas. We won't withhold things that could make those around us better. And I think that when you can put those together, it creates some vision. And then I think the other part of it is you just, you have to live it. And it's really easy to talk about culture. But if you talk about culture and a week later, make a big decision that is counter that culture, um, you very, very quickly lose credibility. And the second you undermine that credibility, uh, you've lost the ability to build a strong culture. So do you actually set it up on the front end by talking about some of those values and beliefs? You talk about living it, and I totally agree that you have to walk the walk. You have to actually embody the type of culture and the type of environment that you want to foster. Curious what your approach has been to at least start off on the right foot. Is it a conversation? Is it at an initial meeting? What is your process to kind of set the foundation for the culture that you want the the team to have? Yeah, I'll start by saying, I think there's a lot of ways to do this well, but the way that I've done it historically in the past um, is really starting with getting to know the individuals, spending a lot of time investing in them and trying to understand them because really, you know, culture is an expression of people to some degree. And if you can build off of what's already there, you're not shocking people into something different. You're edifying the good things that already exist. And so, for example, you know, the the team recently that you referred to early on, I spent a lot of time one on one with everyone in that team to better understand why they're here. What do they currently like about the team? What was their proudest accomplishment on the team? Where can we improve? And it's just a lot of probing questions. And, And I did that for my first couple of weeks in role. And then I basically put all that together and had a better understanding of a whole team where it was. And I use that to then partner with my own thoughts and opinions and then drew from that the culture. And I think that when you do that, you can come back with a vision of here's who we are. And it's not just my opinion of who we are. It's, hey, and this already exists because so-and-so represents this so well and -and so-and-so is really good at this. And as you do that, you're creating a culture that I think people have buy-in and you're creating a culture in which you can already point to examples of excellence. And I think that's really important early on is that you're not creating it out of thin air. You're, you're pointing to people who do it really well, whatever it is based on that culture. Yeah. And I love that you took the time to meet with people individually. You could have done 
just group sessions, things of that nature. But the fact that you took the time and sometimes you need to slow down to speed up, right? hundred percent. Yeah. You made sure that you gave the attention to each individual. And I know in some cases, if somebody has a, a, you know, a large organization of hundreds or even thousands, you may not be able to meet with everyone individually. However, if you can meet with as many people on a one-on-one basis, I think that's a great starting off point. And then I think to your point, highlighting people that are already doing it, I think is a really important approach as well. To complement that process, I think that establishing strong culture comes from internal work that someone's done on themselves to have some really strong roots in how they define themselves and um, you know how do they orient their life? What is their philosophy on living? It's really hard to come in and create a culture that's very counter who you are. But if you've done a lot of work and a lot of intentional thinking in your life on what's important to you, what's not, how do you want people to um, think of you? How do you want to treat people? How do you want to be known? I think that ultimately that internal work expresses itself in the culture that you're leading. Yeah, that's pretty insightful, I'd say. So let me make sure I'm understanding. You, you, you Knowing yourself, knowing who you are and understanding the type of person that you strive to be, that you want to be, and, the, and what you want to put out into the universe and what you want your team to see you as is, is a critically important part of the, the whole recipe, which is you got to know yourself and you got to know how how you're presenting yourself and, and what the team sees of you, because ultimately they're going to follow you as the leader. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're someone who is very kind of uh, slow paced, methodical and thinking, stoic, not real fun, and you're trying to start a team where the culture is high energy, lots of fun. I mean, you can, as a team, kind of build that as where you want the culture to be. But if that's so counter to who you are, it's going to be really, really hard, not impossible, but really hard to establish that kind of culture. And that's just obviously an example with a few traits. But I think that's why, you know, it's so important to focus on the internal side of things first before going external. And that's true in life in general. I mean, Mother Teresa has a quote that if you want to change the world, start by loving in your own home. And gosh, I mean, you talk about insights. For me, that was a big one because it's so easy to go out into the world and love someone who you don't know well enough to understand their flaws or understand the things that would irritate you. There's enough detachment to where it's really easy. But loving first in your own home, when you are shoulder to shoulder with your spouse or your kids, whatever it is, where you see the good, the bad, the ugly, sometimes there's a cost to that. There's a cost to swallowing your pride or not getting your way in those moments. And the costliness of working to do that well, it develops perseverance and it develops kind of a polish that I think makes us better. And so that, that concept of working on yourself first or working on something small and then growing it out, that applies to culture. And if you haven't done that kind of work first and you're trying to express that with a team of 20 people, it's backwards in my mind. But if you've done it individually, you've done it within your your family, uh, you've done it within your community, it's much more natural to now expand that out and say, great, here's the next group where I'm going to express something that's not really changing who you are or how you live. It's just doing it in a new platform. Yeah. Wow. That's profound, man. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I love that insight. Let's dive into kind of just leadership principles of success and what you've seen. You've encountered lots of leaders throughout your career, both amazing leaders that I'm sure you admire and respect and on the other end of the spectrum as well. Let's stay positive and talk about the areas that that you've identified as some of the things that 
really make leaders successful and, and some of the characteristics or traits that you find to be most valuable that they would have? Sure. This is one of those topics where I think it can be dangerous because as soon as you say a word, there's just so much out there, you know, research, studies, books, et cetera, that people automatically associate that word with X. And, and so I'll start by just saying that I think it, it's always helpful to go below the surface. But one of them, which is, I think, a common trend in the sphere is the idea of servant leadership. And that idea, I, I think it's so core to how I lead because it's so core within my life and my theology and how I make sense of this world. But truly, I, I think that servant leadership requires, it requires sacrifice here. There's a cost to it. Um, but with that, I think there's a genuineness of desire that people see that really allows you to get buy-in and allows you to um, get people uh, aligned with you in a, in a way that I don't know another tool that's as powerful. Yeah. I, I, of course, you know, I subscribe to servant leadership as well. And I, I know the value and I know the sacrifice involved, you know, and it is to your point, I think you kind of did a disclaimer to start, which is like, Hey, there's so much stuff out there and it is that buzzword you know, whether it be vulnerability or servant leadership mm-hmm. or, you know, there's a reason, there's a reason cliches exist. Right. There's a reason sayings exist. There's, it's not by accident. So let's dive in a bit deeper on servant leadership. And then I'd love to hear what other traits or characteristics you believe are important in, in terms of leadership. So, but why, like why servant leadership? I mean, we hear it all the time. We, I understand their sacrifice. Why is it so important? Let's get to the root of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to to tag on to what you just said, look, it's really easy to know of something and not know that something. And I think that that's so often where we get in trouble is we're so familiar with something because it is a cliche or a buzzword that we become numb to trying to discover the meaning behind it. And so you hear servant leadership and the initial reaction is, oh, great. Another person talking about servant leadership. Yeah, I get it. It's important but you may not know, know it. You may not understand the root of it. And so for me, that's, that's always been a a challenge is if I think something's important, do I think it's important and just know of it? You know, do I kind of vaguely understand it or do I know it to the extent that I've lived it? I've exercised it. I can point to it when I see it. And I think that when you get to that level, it's just totally different. But you know, if we're going to try and define why is it so important? Look, I, I think at our core we as human beings have a desire to connect. I think that, you know, connecting with one another, connecting uh, and feeling loved, feeling valued, those are just core principles to, you know, how we are created. And so I think that one of the things that servant leadership uniquely does is it says, I value you and I am willing to sacrifice in order for you to feel that value. And that is like I said, costly. Um, you can't fake it, but when people see it done, they feel valued and loved in a way that's just so much more compelling than the cheap methods that are often used, like fear or you know motivation through monetary things, things like that. Where yes, you might get a response from it, but it lacks the depth that servant leadership can can pull from someone. I I love it. I and I totally agree. And and I love the fact that you're citing the the just the need for connection as one of the core reasons why servant leadership is so valuable. When I think of how I connect with people, and when I think of specifically how I connect with people that are on my team, the more they feel like I'm 
willing to give myself and willing to do what it takes to help them be successful and to help them thrive and and reach the goals and achieve the success that they're capable of achieving, the more I'm able to truly embody and, and pass that along to them, I think the more they're going to do what it takes to to do it on their own, right? So, you know, if if they feel abandoned, if they feel like like they're being used or they're just a means to an end or they're just another person, they don't feel connected, right? And to your point, the more one can feel connected and the more one can feel like the person that they report to or the person that is that leader is in the trenches with them, the more I believe they're going to go above and beyond to do anything and everything necessary to be successful and to, to reach the goals and, and to kind of go as, as far as they're capable of going and, and reach sort of optimal performance. And the converse is true as well. If somebody feels like that person is not around and is either MIA, not reachable, not, not able to be there for them, they're not going to want to do anything more than the bare minimum. And so servant leadership works because you feel connected to the people that you're working with, specifically your leader or the manager, and you're going to be more likely to have your arms locked with them and and, and do the things necessary to reach whatever it is the goal is that you're setting out to achieve. So yeah, I love yeah, it. I mean, Look, there's no shortcuts when it comes to servant leadership. The word sacrifice, I think, came, comes back into my mind as you're talking about that. It's not a cheap fix. And, and so often in the business world, that's what we want. We want the, the cheap fix. We want the quick results. But when we do that, we rob tomorrow to pay today. And we end up creating systems or cultures that aren't sustainable. And we often don't set people up to have servant leadership as a key priority. I mean, think about the conversations that most companies have when someone's promoted to a leadership position where they have people underneath them. Oftentimes the conversation's all about them. You know, Billy, you're so great. We're we're so impressed with you. We want you to take over this team. And that's all about the person. It's all very focused on them versus Billy, we think that you're capable of this and, and you've done such a great job, but we want you to understand that this is a tremendous opportunity. And this is going to cost you in ways that your job hasn't costed you in the past. This is what we expect from you. I, I just, you don't hear those types of conversations a lot, but I think in a ideal culture, that would be part of the conversation because the reality is servant leaders beget servant leaders. Oftentimes, if you've worked for or with someone who is truly a servant leader, you can trace that back because they learned it from someone else. Um, but yeah. in most companies, because that isn't prioritized, you'll see these servant leaders as islands within the the scope of, you know, the ocean of the company. And so unfortunately for a lot of companies by not, by not prioritizing it, you know, those people aren't able to create the kind of impact that they could have if the company would recognize and make that an important long-term piece. It breeds upon itself, right? If you, if you have servant leadership becomes part of the DNA, a part of the culture and, and all leaders embody a servant leadership mindset, it, it does sort of build upon itself and, and people emulate what they see, whether that be the, somebody who is a servant leader or somebody who isn't, they're, they're likely to emulate whatever that, that other person is. What are some other, when you kind of, when you dig deep and you think, okay, the type of leader that I strive to be that I'd like others to say about me, like one would be, they call you a servant leader. What else 
would fall into that bucket of the success principles of a, of a leader? Yeah, I think humility is a big one. This isn't always something that I do naturally. I think it's so easy, especially in the work environment, to lack humility. As I look at those who have been the, the biggest impact in my life, humility has been a really important piece of that. Because I think humility uh, complements servant leadership um, in that you're you're not sending the message that I am more valuable than you, or I know more than you. And so I think that that's a really important piece of it. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody likes the arrogant person, right? <laughs> nobody likes somebody that is holier than thou and just kind of acts as if they are somehow better than you, especially if that person already has a superior title like it's almost like you have to go out of your way that you do have some humility and that you don't just think that you're the shit frankly yeah and i think it does help tremendously when you so show some humility especially as as a leader i'll just say that i think that there's you know one of the things that i have i don't know if struggled or you know kind of swung back and forth on over the years that i still try and figure out is what is humility and confidence both need to exist and both need to exist fully. And so how do you do that? And, you know, one of the things that I've heard it described is that, you know, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking more of others. And I think that that's a really powerful way to think about it because so often, you know, if someone's trying to be more humble, um, you know, someone will compliment them and they'll say, no, 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 that's not me or, oh, you know, and they'll deflect the compliment. And, And I think that true humility is someone who can accept compliments well, who can recognize the value that they have created and the value created in them, but they think so highly of others that it reflects in a way that others feel extraordinarily valued by them. Yeah, and I, I do think being able to accept compliments is, is sometimes hard because you, you you don't want to come across as arrogant, but at the same time, I think there is that fine line, right? You, you want a confident leader. You don't want somebody that's not confident. So don't mistake humility with lack of confidence, I, I think is is kind of, in a sense, what we're talking about here is, is have the confidence and have the ability to recognize and, and the self-awareness to recognize that you, you do have some strengths and some areas that you're, that others will, will value and will see as reasons to follow you and accept when they share and, and and provide you positive feedback, but also don't uh, let it get to your head. Don't, don't let it get to your ego and let it shine through as arrogance because nobody, again, nobody wants to be around somebody that's arrogant or pompous or kind of thinks of themselves in a way that is not necessarily the type of way that, that you would, you would want. Right. At its core, if I can add one more thing, I would just say that there's no easy fixes, just like we talked about earlier. And I think that really that comes from hard questions you have to ask yourself. What defines me and where do I gain my own value? And there's a danger, I think, today in the way we talk about ourselves. You know, Build your brand where we start to attribute our value to those around us. And when that happens, it becomes incredibly difficult to have an authentic humility as a person because you've attached your value to what others think. And so you may be able to present facade of humility, but typically people will see through that. And so I guess the theme that we keep coming back to is doing the work and asking yourself the hard questions, having dangerous friends, having people in your life who I say dangerous friends, it's a term we use, but the idea is they know you well enough to know your warts and to know your good traits 
and you've given them enough insight that if they wanted to be dangerous, if they wanted to cut you down, they could. But by giving that level of trust in another human being, they can also give you the kind of feedback and encouragement to make you better. And so I think when you have that kind of community and you ask those hard questions, you create real and authentic understanding of those things. And so back to this point, if you have, uh, if how you feel valued in this world isn't based on others, it's much easier to then learn what does it look like to be a humble leader. Yeah. And I think you, you touched on authenticity and, and, you know, it's so interesting how kind of these words just sort of bubble up in so many conversations that I have about leadership, humility, vulnerability, authenticity, right? Servant leadership. And again, these are words that you hear, but you hear them for a reason. And, and so don't just tune them out because you hear them so frequently. Like why, why is vulnerability important? Why is the trust that you build with your team important? Why is it important to be an authentic and genuine person and not a phony, not a fake? Why? Why is it important to lead your team with a servant's mindset? And so these are areas that if you don't just hear the word and acknowledge that, yeah, that may be the case, but actually truly understand the meaning behind it and what the psychology is and what the emotional and feelings behind it are, then it really shines a spotlight on why they're so important. Because once you know the why behind it, then it really does allow you to I think, believe it more organically as opposed to just hear it and acknowledge it, you're actually believing it. True leaders, true leaders who are able to have sustained impact on people's lives that are not just short-term shifts, but really help reorient people towards a common goal. They do it based on authentic, genuine principles and you just can't fake it. And that's, I think that's part of what you're saying is that it has to be real. Otherwise people see through it. I mean, we all can think of those leaders who understood the definition of servant leadership and tried to portray those things. And yet everyone around them saw straight through it because ultimately all that was, was a compartmentalized piece of that person's interactions. And it wasn't a genuine part of who they were all the time. Yeah. And and I think that's a, a perfect lead into kind of my next question is when you've seen leaders go off the track, or maybe they were just never on the right track. What are they most frequently missing or doing or saying that is causing them to not be as effective as a leader? That's a good question. <laughs> go uncensored yeah. here. You, know, you, don't have no, to obviously no, no. Use any, you don't have to use anybody's names or anything like that, but you've seen it. Yeah. No, it's a, it, it's a great question. I, I mean, I guess I, I'm just tr- thinking through like what where do you start to look at that? Because on the one hand, the outcome, the way that those people lead is a direct correlation of who they are. It's an expression of who they are in a lot of facets. Um, And so, so much of that is so personal that, you know, I I don't, it'd be judgmental to speculate on that level of who they are. And so I think that that's something worth acknowledging, but I don't think it's something that, you know, you can really tackle um, from afar. What I will say is I think a lot of times those leaders either haven't gone through the exercise or the conclusion they've made going through the exercise of what is success. It ultimately dictates how that culture is created with their teams. And what I mean by that is if you are looking at success only as a KPI 
or a, a target as defined by a spreadsheet or a scoreboard, it means that ultimately when it gets really hard, when things aren't coming easy, you are willing to sacrifice the most things if it means that you can hit that number. Versus if you feel the conviction that certain things are more important than even that target, even if your job and your employment is based on that and you are unwilling to do certain things to get there, I think that creates boundaries on how you will interact with people and the kind of culture you'll set and the way in which you will treat people when it gets really tough. And so, yeah, I would say, I think that that's something that's perhaps missing in some of those leaders is either they haven't thought through that and really thought through what is good look like, um, or they have, and they came to the conclusion that good is the scoreboard above all else. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all seen it before is that people are almost myopically focused on one thing at the expense of almost everything else. And they're willing to compromise. They're willing to do things that they probably shouldn't do at the expense of a lot of things, including their own moral compass even. And and so curious, you've seen leaders that have been solely focused on the scoreboard and they only focus on that. Can those types of leaders, can they be successful? Sure, they could be successful, but what is the cost? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it is. And it comes back to what do you define as success? And while I've seen a lot of leaders like that have success over short sprints, I don't believe that that success is sustainable. And I don't believe that that success transcends beyond that singular goal most of the time. And part of the reason for that is, look, if that's who you are as a leader and that one thing is above all else, then when you have people around you who are leaders in a more holistic way, they actually become a threat to you because when they come to you and they say, Hey, we need to focus on culture or Hey, morale is bad or Hey, this decision is going to have this negative impact. You are going to be so threatened by that message that oftentimes you'll either remove them or distance them from having the ability to influence you as a leader. And so perpetually what happens is over time you have less and less people who care about those things and focus on those things as a leader. And you surround yourself with more people um, who operate in the same way that you do. Now, I think oftentimes, you know, those leaders, and I'm really not talking about a specific person right now. I see see this a lot, but I think oftentimes those leaders would say, well, the end justifies the means. And and that's why I would say that it comes back to the work of how you define a success. And I'm not going to change their minds. They're not going to change mine. I think that's the pattern that you see a lot of times with those leaders. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think that you're, you're, you're spot on is that they're the means justify the end type of leader. And, and that, that that's a bit scary to say the least. Speaking of scary, life is full of curveballs and moments that do uh, test us in many ways. And part of that is, I think, just the nature of existing. And we have challenges. We have failures. Curious if you reflect and look back at your own life and you think of some of the challenges that you faced, what what would be a challenge that stands out as maybe the biggest or one of the biggest life challenges that you've had? And what did you do to overcome or really make yourself as immune to the the challenge and and, and prevent failure? And and kind of how did you overcome it? It's a good question. I've been thinking a lot about about challenges lately and not necessarily in the same way that the question was phrased, but in how do we look at the challenges that others go through? And I guess I'll start with just a thought because it's 
been on my mind, but I think that so often as we go through challenges within our own life, we look at those around us and we look at the stories of of people that we're aware of and we compare our challenges to those people. And we say, oh, I have it better. At least I have it better than this person. Or we say, man, my challenges are so much harder than these people. And it's just, it's not fair. And the reason I've been thinking about that a lot is, you know, what is the purpose of challenge in our life? And I think that, you know, I, I get into that thought pattern a lot too. And I think that it's, it's really a dangerous thing because what we do is we risk losing the benefit of challenges when we do that. And we also risk our conclusion being based on other people around us. And the inverse of that, and, and what I'm trying to do a better job of is when we come across these challenges is looking at those challenges and looking at how is this an opportunity for me to change or what is this leading me towards internally? Like what, what here is making this so hard and where do I need to grow? Because usually that's what it comes down to. And, you know, I've been exposed to other people's challenges where, you know, some of them they're struggling so much and you just like, I'll be honest, you get to a point where you're like, get over it. And then other people's challenges you get exposed to, you know, I spent some time in Rwanda for an internship in college and exposure to the genocide uh, in Rwanda. And it just, it literally, it's unfathomable, really can't understand the depth of those challenges. And I guess what I'm getting at here is it's not our job to, to judge the validity of challenge. It's our job to take challenge within our own life as an opportunity. And, And so I say all that, I guess, just to pre-frame before I talk about my own, because I think for some people, it might be more challenging than what they've been through. For others, they may laugh and say, wow, I wish. But my point is that challenges are opportunities. And so I wouldn't say that I have one thing that stands out above all else, but I can definitely point to a few. And I guess I'll pause before I jump into any specifics there. Yeah. I mean, I I, I love your pre-frame and you're the king of pre-frames. I and I think it's important to to recognize what you're saying because it's it is valuable. Life is going to be crappy. There's going to be things that happen that suck. What you do with those things matter. Meaning, don't just say life sucks because it does, and then not gain anything from whatever is happening in your life that sucks. I'm saying this in really basic terms because, frankly, it, sometimes it needs to be said in such basic terms. We are going to have learning opportunities present themselves in crazy ways. Sometimes they present themselves in the most painful ways possible. And that's why it sometimes takes a huge life challenge or even a just straight-up failure in life to be the best lesson that we could have ever had. And so we need to be aware enough and open our eyes enough and open our mind enough to allow those learning opportunities to be learning opportunities instead of just an event that happened that was terrible. And so I think what I'm hearing from you is just be open and receptive to these moments in life that may appear crappy because that could be the single greatest learning opportunity that you've had. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I mean, look, another way of of saying that is life is and will always be hard. And so often what we seek is comfort in life. The way we live is our goal is to remove things that make us uncomfortable. 
um, whether that's finances, whether it's the people we surround ourselves with, whether it's our, our homes, our cars, whatever it is, we seek comfort. And when things are hard, it threatens that comfort. And like everything we've talked about, I think it comes back to what is the center of your life and how do you orient yourself? What's your philosophy or your theology? Because if you don't have something you're anchored to that helps to work through these things and address these things and make sense of them in the world we're in, it's hard. I honestly don't know how I would live. And if I can tell you, I for sure wouldn't be the same person if I didn't have that. That said, you know, as I look back at my life, there's, there's definitely a few you know, one of them is when I was in high school, um, I had a, some stomach problems for a little while, uh, and that escalated to one night where I was just extraordinarily sick, throwing up over and over and over, perpetually just getting worse and worse to the extent that uh, my dad ended up taking me to the ER because I was just pale and shaking. And they ran a lot of tests and it came back that I had Crohn's disease. And this has become something that's it seems like much more frequent the last decade or so. Uh, I have my own suspicions that it probably has to do with our, our food system or you know some of the, the chemicals or environmental things in our country. But regardless, at the time, um, it wasn't something that was very common in folks that were younger. It was something they found typically in folks a little older. And so you know, we found that out. And like many people who've gone through anything that's a challenge health-wise, there's the initial shock of it. And then there's the process of learning what are the implications of this and what does it mean and how does this impact my life and you know everything along those lines and over the first three years or so after I was diagnosed I would deal with these flare-ups where essentially the section of my stomach between my large and my small intestine would inflame and it would constrict to the point where I couldn't eat or drink and so I would know it's flaring up based on pain in my abdomen I'd start throwing up and the only solution was to go into the hospital and they put me on IVs, pump me full of steroids, no eating or drinking for three or four days. And then eventually the inflammation would subside and then on I go. And so over the course of that three-year period, you know, that was challenging. And there's parts of that that, especially at that age, is really scary to figure out. Um, I had some flare-ups at less than convenient times. I mentioned when I was at Best Buy, 16 or 17, that was my first business trip. My second business trip with Best Buy was to Minnesota to their headquarters in St. Paul. And, you know, mind you, I'm with five or six people from my store. I was helping open up a new location. They're all quite a bit older than me. So I'm already the young guy on the trip. And uh, literally the first day we were out there, I had a flare up. The trip was a four day trip. I spent the entire trip uh, at the hospital in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. So, you know, that continued in my early 20s. I had surgery where they removed that section of my stomach. You know, in, any kind of surgery like that is you know, I'd say a tough thing to go through. And then that, that process of recovery, I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks and it was um, a few things that were compounded by it. But overall, it was about a month process of pre-surgery, surgery, recovery, where I dropped from, you know, 170 pounds down to about 130 pounds. When your body isn't what it should be, it can be a scary thing. And so I'd say just that season, that stretch, I look back and there's a lot of things that going through that impacted uh, and taught me, frankly. What did it teach you? How did it impact you? How did it make you the person you are today? Yeah. I, I mean, in some sense, I think that, look, anything that forces us to look at our own mortality reorients us. And at the very beginning of this, we talked about the difference in insights that happen over time that you look back on and realize versus those that happen in the moment. And 
you know, at the time that, uh, that I was diagnosed, there's a lot less known than there is now, but there was a real possibility that, you know, it could result in the type of surgery where, you know, there's coloscopy bags, there's major restrictions dietarily, potentially life expectancy. There's all kinds of unknowns that come with that. And so, you know, I feel blessed and fortunate that it, it went into remission after the surgery that I had. Um, but it did force me to think through some of those things. And I think as a 17 year old thinking through your mortality or your health at such a young age, it does force you to come back to a lot of the things we've talked about earlier, which is answering those tough questions of why do I exist? Why am I here? What happens if you die? I mean, it's making sense of humanity and the world we're in. I think that, you know, my sophomore year of high school, there were some things that had prompted me to start asking some of those questions with depth. But I think that this was an accelerant that really brought a new level of seriousness to some of those questions. You know, it's interesting because we all have the same thing in common. That is that we will all eventually expire, at least in this world that we that we know in this existence, in this realm. And depending on your beliefs, there's all sorts of things that may happen to you after that. But we can all agree that we're, we're going to die. And I think when you, at a very young age, realize that, yeah, <laughs> you're not immune to death. No person is. But, but as you get or have an experience like the one you had, clearly it, it puts your mind in a different headspace, which is interesting, especially at that age. I, I was speaking to Dee recently, in fact, in, in the interview that I had with her, and she said that she's always thought that she's going to die about two years from now. Uh, which I thought was an interesting way of thinking. But what sort of dawned on me as she said that, and as we had the conversation, is that she leads her life in a, in a very intentional way, in a, in a way that she can say that like every moment is valued. Because if you do live your life knowing that you never know when your time is up, you're going to give that much more to life. And so I, I would imagine if you have this medical condition and exposure to mortality at, at a, such a young age, it does put in perspective, your time is limited, might as well make the most of it. And speaking of time, that is an area that I, I'm fascinated by time. I'm fascinated by what we choose to do on any given moment, because we are always making a choice. You could do one thing or you could do another thing, or you could do another thing. And so when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else by default. When I teed up our introduction, you were somebody that had a reputation for being exceptional at time management. You and Martin Wiley, who I also had the opportunity to interview. And I think Martin probably shares a little bit in common with you in that you may not be by nature the best time manager or more specifically manager of yourself. It's something that you've had to work at. And I'm curious, that's what he said about himself. I'm curious if that's true with you. And then secondly, let's dive in and let's roll up our sleeves and talk about some time management hacks that you follow and that you believe have a, a positive impact on your ability to manage your time and manage yourself. Sure. Yeah, I'm definitely not the type A person who is consistently well-organized across their life. And time management is just one of those categories. I would attribute the reputation that I had there for good time management more to my problem solving skills and more to what my priorities were. Honestly, I mean, during that season, I had recently got married, had my daughter, um, you know, about a year after that. And so success for me is how do I perform at a level that is amongst the best in the company? 
but how do I do that at less than or around 40 hours a week versus those who are working, you know, 70 hours a week to perform at that level. And the only way you get there is by executing better. And a big part of that is time management. And so I think that, you know, really that's what drove me to implement the things that built that reputation. I love that. And I love that you you said that you strive to work a 40 hour work week. And I know that, you know, as somebody that has put more on your plate than would allow for a 40 hour work week, I apologize, but you share something in common with, I think a lot of people, which is your, your job's important and you don't, you don't want to shortchange your job. You want to perform, you want to perform at a high level, but you want to be as effective and as efficient as possible. And what happens all too often is people spend 70, 80 hours a week working, but how many of those hours are actually effective hours? And so it's, it may be that they only have 30 effective hours and yet they're spending 70, 80 hours of their time which is crazy. It's just nuts. And so let's unwrap or uncover some of those time management hacks that you've utilized that have allowed you to to be as efficient and as effective as possible. Yeah. Well, and one thing that I think is worth saying is, look, just because my aspiration and my goal was to work 40 hours a week or less and have that level of performance, that doesn't mean that that was a boundary that I was unwilling to cross for the job. And, you know, you alluded to the process of recruiting me to your team at the very beginning of this podcast. And a big part of that process was me reconciling, can I perform at the level that I would want to in these roles as you progressively, you know, offered more opportunity to me and still maintain those priorities outside of work. And I think if we're not asking ourselves those questions, when we accept the responsibilities of a new role, we're missing a really important step. And so, you know, absolutely, there, there were seasons where it was more than 40 hours of, of work in a week with you, but it comes back to what's most important and then how do I adapt for that? And so, you know me, we spent plenty of time, uh, you know, jumping on a Zoom after midnight and working up until two, three in the morning during some of those crazy weeks. And that was a way that I could still prioritize family and those things that were really important, but not sacrifice performance at the job because I, I wouldn't endorse someone saying, hey, this is more important to me you know, X, whatever that is, family, hobby, side hustle, whatever that is, I wouldn't endorse them saying that and then sacrificing a role that they've committed to take. Yeah. I think that's an important distinction because ultimately I think when you say yes to something and you commit to it, don't commit and then go halfway. It's like the whole expectation principle. If you're going to set expectations and by saying yes to a job, right? Or saying yes to a position or saying yes to starting a business, you're saying yes to a certain level of commitment. And the commitment level that you put out, it will be noticed and it will be very clear to those around you, whether that be your boss or your employees or your peers, they're going to see and feel how much commitment you're giving out. And that commitment doesn't always equate, and it shouldn't always equate to the number of minutes, but it should equate to your effectiveness in being able to achieve the results that you set out to achieve. So yeah, so I I think think that's a, a great setup. What would you say are some of your most helpful time management hacks, tricks, or skills that you've developed to help yourself be able to maximize the time that you put in and and be as effective as possible. A couple come to mind. I mean, one is more of a disposition than a hack or a step, and that's be curious. And I think that curiosity can be a really healthy thing. 
And if your goal is to drive efficiency in what you do, then being curious on how to gain that efficiency is a frame of mind. And so one of the things that I would do is as I found myself doing the same tasks over and over, I would ask myself, is there a better way to do this? And that could be anything from how I'm doing it. It could be finding new tools, software, website, browser add-ons, best practices from others, whatever that is. But the idea is if that's your disposition, then incrementally every day, you're starting to systematize or find shortcuts to do the same work, but slightly quicker. And I think that this is one of the things that's easy to miss because if you're sending an email that, you know, maybe an email similar to something you're going to send tomorrow and then again the next day, it might take you five minutes to write that email and it might take another 10 minutes or 15 minutes to actually turn that into a template that's flexible enough to reuse. And so it might seem counterintuitive to spend 20 minutes on something as opposed to five, but it's recognizing that that extra 15 minutes is an investment that's going to pay dividends in an extra, you know, four to five minutes saved every day. And cumulatively, that adds up pretty quick. And if you can multiply that same tactic across a lot of things that you do in a day, it's actually not too far-fetched to take a 60-hour work week and get it down to 50 hours pretty quickly. That's amazing. What a great insight. Again, I say this a lot. Sometimes you got to slow down to speed up and it might take you longer to write that template email in the short term, but in the long term, it's going to save you tons of time. And I think the key takeaway in what I just heard is ask yourself the question, could you do this faster? Could you do this in a different way? Could you automatize this? Uh, Could you delegate this? Could you delete this? Could you do something other than what you're doing current state to allow yourself to maximize the time that you have. And so this is a really important part of your strategy, which is ask that question, can you do it another way? All right, let's hear another one. What else you got? Yeah, no, and honestly, like, I think that that's a fun part of it too. It's almost a game is it's, you know, you're constantly challenging yourself with how can I create creative ways to do this? And, you know, in separate conversations, we've talked about how different jobs or different careers have been so, so diverse in their focus. And I think that this is an outcome that's a really good one is, you know, that that's forced me to kind of hone this, um, but in a lot of different ways. And because of that, I don't use the same tactic every time. Instead, I come in with the same disposition um, and have to find the right, the right way to execute that based on the role. That said, there's definitely some other ones as far as time management. I think one of the really important ones is when you wake up every day, what dictates what you spend your time on that day? And too many of us answer that question, if we're honest, with something that puts us in a very reactive frame. That answer would look something like, oh, you know, it's whatever emails I come across first oftentimes dictates where I spend my time. Or, you know, I got a phone call from so-and-so and they needed help on X, whatever that is. Versus, you know, being really intentional with breaking down, where do I want to go? What does good look like? How am I going to get there? And then reverse engineering that literally within your calendar, blocking off time on the calendar to do those things, have those right conversations, et cetera. And when you do that, essentially you're budgeting your time the same way you would budget your money or anything else. And so when someone comes to you then with an email request or an ask or a phone call, you have to evaluate what have I committed to versus what was I asked. And a lot of times you have to reconcile those. And so if if that ask by someone else is less important than the work you're already doing, then it means that you need to have a conversation with that person and you either need to align to, you know, push your deadline out for your own work or get more help on your work 
or only take on a portion of the request or say no to the request. And too often people very quickly through a phone call, a text or an email pass off work onto someone else. And that work is just accepted. And I say too often, not because it's not important to collaborate. You are one of the best I've ever worked with at that, but it's really easy to distract yourself from the excellence of what you should be doing with something that might be good, but not really best suited for you to be working on. You have a great training that you've done on how to say no and do it in an artful and more, I would say, accepted way that will make your the person who's asking feel valued and not like you're just pushing them off. To kind of go back to what you just said in terms of that reactionary approach versus the more proactive approach, I couldn't agree more that this is a, a very common, extremely common approach that, that a lot of people get wrong. And that is they base their day, the trajectory of their day is completely based on the most recent requests that they've gotten, as opposed to what is the truly highest priority item they need to tackle to help them and whatever goal they're trying to achieve, get there the fastest. I I do want to dive in uh, deeper on the time management. And in fact, I think maybe we could do a whole session just on time management. Why don't we just do one more there? And then we're going to get into the lightning round. But but what would be one other uh, time management philosophy or mindset piece that you would say would be valuable to share with our audience? Sure. Well, I I guess I could tee up maybe, you know, a a follow-up session where we go deeper on this, but I think that a lot of what I just described and how you navigate that is also how proactive are you with making others aware of what your focus is and what your work is. And if you're always having to react to the questions uh, or requests of others, and you feel like you're being put in a position to have to say no a lot, that can be really uncomfortable. And it can also damage the perceived value you have within the organization. So I think part of the best practice I would suggest is be really proactive in communicating what you're working on with those people who tend to request a lot of you. And that can be a weekly email update of you know the projects that you're working on. It can be you know during one-on-ones with that person, just aligning on what your focus is that week. I think it depends on the nature of the relationship, whether it's a supervisor, a peer, or so on. By setting some anchor points proactively uh, when people request things of you, it makes it much easier to have a dialogue of, is this more important than this? And I think that that allows you to navigate those requests a lot better. So you you sort of alluded to it in that last, when you did your your training on how to say no, I know a lot of it does play into what you currently have on your plate. Maybe you could talk in short, what is your approach to being able to tell somebody, no, you you, you really can't do that. And, and, and here's the reason, like, how, how would you articulate that to the person asking or requesting, you know, some of your time? Yeah. Well, first off, that training was something I did in collaboration with Dee Murphy, who you also interviewed. And I think she's a master at this. And then the way we hosted that training was the managers that came to it actually studied this. And each one had about 45 minutes to teach all of us how to do this. So I can't take credit for that because it was really a collaboration where at the end of it, we all learned a lot about this topic. But I mean, I think there's a few notes that I could, I could share. I think that one is, you know, it goes back to what we've been talking about uh, one more time. And that's who you are the rest of the time affects how people will interact with you on that one example. And if you're consistent and if you have a good reputation for delivering results, um, if you're a servant leader and people understand your disposition, 
it's going to make it way easier to navigate this than frankly, if you're a jerk. And so who you are all the time matters. The other thing is I think that you really need to understand and empathize with the other person before giving an answer. It's real easy to give a knee jerk no based on what's on your plate. But if you don't understand the circumstances surrounding that person, even if you can't help, um, you risk, you know, damaging that relationship long term. So I think a great way to start is, you know, help me better understand the request, the context, who your stakeholders are, what's the end result we're trying to get at. Because what that does is not only do you then empathize and connect more with that person on a human level, but even if you can't take ownership of their ask, you may be able to provide a halfway resource, whether that's something that you can give a little bit of time, some work you've already done, or connecting them to other people in the organization they may not have thought of that could be a a partner with them on that project. I love that. And, And it does pay huge dividends to hear them out. Don't just immediately say no, but you, you do, you one, you need to know what the request is. So you can, maybe it is something so important that you do need mm-hmm. to drop everything you're doing and do it. In most cases, it's not, but, but let's just assume that, that that is the possibility and just show that you're listening and that you care and that you do want to support them and help them. And it may be that you need to point them in the direction of somebody else. There's lots of different ways that you can sort of navigate those waters. Mm-hmm. Let's dive into the uh, to the lightning round. With the lightning round, what it really is, is it's putting you in a situation to kind of think about how you'd respond or react given a se- certain set of circumstance or, or an emotional response to the question. So the first question is, what excites you? Great question. People learning, I think thoughtfulness and asking hard questions with people where it's a safe environment to really kind of dig and and push yourself. I absolutely love those moments. And I think innovation, um, I think really big challenges, working with the right people to get to there. That's exciting. What scares you? What other people think of me. Like if I'm honest, I'm someone who always, you know, I have to fight against caring what other people think. And we talked about that a little earlier. I think I would like to think at least that I've gotten better at that. But at my core, I think there's still a part of me that even though I don't want to be defined by other people, there's a part of me that has to fight against that. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing. That says a lot about you. What surprises you? Oh man, life every day. My daughter, you know, watching a human being go from creation to these different stages of life. I think there's so much joy in just being surprised almost daily uh, by being a parent. Oh man, kids do do surprise. Uh, that's that's for sure. <laughs> Some better than others, but all of them genuine surprises. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you feel comfortable sharing, when was the last time you cried and why? Definitely feel comfortable. I'm trying to remember um, probably a movie, honestly. Uh, I tend to be the, the kind of guy that... Uh, I love story and I love narrative. I'm impacted and inspired by story a lot of times. Um, so whether that's a, a sports movie or you know a drama, but I think stories of redemption and connection, overcoming odds, you know, they, they typically get me. So I wish I could give you a name of a movie off the top of my head. Uh, I can't right now, but it, it's it's got to be a movie. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. But that's a, that makes sense. I mean, I know you, you're a story guy, so it does make sense that, 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 that pulls your heart straight. Yeah. If you ask Teresa, I'm not crying. I just let her know that it's a little dusty in the room. <laughs> well, I know you're uh, an avid reader and you've read a lot of uh, incredible books and you've recommended incredible books. What book have you recommended more than any other book and why? You know, I, I think that I'd break books down into you know, fiction, entertainment versus, you know, business and kind of self-development and then theology. 
if the question is what book have I recommended the most, it is probably going to be something by Tim Keller or C.S. Lewis. Uh, I'd say that as authors, they've influenced me at my core more than any other authors um, that I've ever read. Why is that? It's upstream. You know, we've talked so much about how who you are at work and who you are in creating culture and all these other things ultimately comes down to the core of who you are as a person. And that's what they tackle. Uh, it's it's theology and what makes sense of all these hard questions in life. And I think that both C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller have a unique ability to go extraordinarily logical, to do so in a way that's complemented by story and narrative, and to complement both of those with a deep love of people. And I think you'll find a lot of people that can do one of those things, maybe two of them well. Uh, but it's pretty rare to find someone who does all three of those really well. Uh, and so, you know, they, they both write quite a bit. Uh, C.S. Lewis is obviously a past generation that he wrote everything from the Chronicles of Narnia, which is fiction, to Mere Christianity, which is uh, a book that unpacks like what is this Christianity thing and how does it work and kind of step by step the core of it. And Tim Keller reminds me a lot of C.S. Lewis, but maybe in a more modern way. But he uh, he planted a church in Manhattan at a time where there weren't many churches like it that existed. And everyone told him, look, this is the most progressive environment. Here's the demographics. Like you can't start a church here. And he did it in such an authentic way and in such a genuinely loving way, but built on kind of truth and logic in an inviting way that it absolutely exploded. And if you read his stories and you read some of his books and the way that he engages in dialogue, he's someone that I would aspire to be able to engage people in the same way. Love it. Who's the most inspirational person in your life and why? I don't have one person. This is this is one of those questions that gets asked at meetings a lot. Uh, and everyone has that, you know, that one person. Mine's a tribe. It's, you know, it's family, it's friends, it's, you know, my wife, my daughter, it's people I read. Uh, and then I mentioned movies to you. Like really, there, there's so many times I'll watch a movie and be inspired by that movie in a way that it forces me to look at something different or challenge something within myself. It's an actor, it's a screenwriter, it's all these people involved, and yet yeah. it, it influences me in a pretty profound way sometimes. So, yeah, it's not a cop out. That's my real answer. But no, it's not no, I love one. That. that. That that makes that makes a ton of sense. Okay, if you could spend one hour with anyone, living or dead, who would it be and why? Gosh, you're going to follow it up with another question just like it. I honestly don't know how to answer it. I think that it depends on what day of the week you catch me and what I'm reading about or what podcasts I'm listening to. I think that a lot of authors, you know, some that I've mentioned, I'd love to spend an hour with. I love Malcolm Gladwell. I just, you know, he's got kind of a curious way of looking at the world. I'm sure he'd be an interesting guy. Honestly, like any historical figure, like pick who it is whether they're good or bad or whatever, you could easily fill an hour with probably some pretty intriguing and uh, amazing dialogue. So yeah, stop, stop sure asking pick, these these questions, Billy. You, I can't narrow it down. You'd pick up some nuggets from anybody. Okay, so <laughs> if you had a chance, to, if you had a chance, mm -hmm. what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I think it's, you know, what we've hit on a little bit. It's, it's stop caring about what other people think. That's been kind of a progressive thing over time that I think I've got better at. But it's so hard the way that we set up kind of the social constructs within our society and school and everything else. Like you really learn from a young age based on your peers that this is what you should care about. And there's these kind of ranking systems and these clicks and, you know, everything else as you get older. And I think, you know, as you turn 20, you get out of that environment and you start to see the real world. And 
I've met and been exposed to just so many incredible people who, if you put them in that construct, they don't fit it. They would never be, you know, the person you'd think of that would be inspiring or impactful. And yet once you hit the real world, you realize like what really matters and what doesn't. And I think that, you know, that process for me, it's taken, it's taken time and it's probably a, a thing that will continue to, to progress over time. But yeah, um, yeah, I think if my 20 year old self could have gotten a head start, it's thing. an ongoing, it's an ongoing process yeah. and it, it, it never ends. Do you have any regrets in life? And if so, what are they? Yeah. I think that people who say they don't have regrets, like I don't understand that answer. You can certainly learn from mistakes and past experience and you don't have to carry it forward. And I think that's what people mean when they say they have no regrets uh, is they don't hold on to that. And that's healthy. But yeah, I mean, I've hurt people. I've made bad decisions. Yeah, I wouldn't say failures are regret. Usually I think it'd probably come back down to like when I've disappointed people in relationships or when I've I've hurt people, you know, things like that. Wow, that's such a common theme I hear. What achievement are you most proud of? Probably my marriage. I mean, it's not really an achievement in that, you know, it's, you know, finishing a marathon, you know, and you have an, a start point and an end point. But I think that, you know, marriage has the potential to really shape us and challenge us. And every day in a relationship at that level of commitment, you have to decide, am I going to numb or am I going to be present and go deeper? And, you know, in our eight years, my wife and I have kind of internally and externally to our marriage had some pretty big struggles and I'm proud of, you know, where we're at. It's never easy, but it is good. And I hope that I can continue to say that. I love that. What a great answer. Last question. We've learned a lot about you over the, the course of this conversation. What may surprise the audience that we don't already know about you? <laughs> I'm definitely a goof. Uh, Teresa, after we got married, accused me of withholding my bizarre and crazy and silly side, um, which maybe I did. Maybe maybe I, I held on to that to make sure I could lock her down before I let her see too much of it. Uh, <laughs> but my daughter and I, you know, we love goofing off. I like to rap and make up songs. Um, Ainsley and I do that all the time where we'll make up lyrics and yeah, I think, look, it, it, as a leader, we'll, we'll tie it back to that. One of the core things that you always outlined in trainings or in teams that you've built um, is the ingredient of fun. And I'm a big believer in that as well. I think that fun is really important. And I would say that I think joy is really important. And I think joy is a disposition where even when it's not easy, uh, you choose to find happiness and you choose to try and have fun. And um you know, I, I hope that people that I've worked with and people I've been around have seen that in me. Um, but what they've not seen is probably the extent that it goes uh, within my house. Yeah, I love it. Anything else you want to share before we conclude? Just how excited I am to see you taking this off the ground. I think that, you know, you're an incredible, incredible person, incredible connector, incredible leader. And I think your ability to uh, converse and then cast this out to the world uh, will only make others better. So I wish you the best of luck and hope I get another chance to come on with you. I'm so glad you said that as the, the last part in particular, because I, I, I feel like we've only scratched the surface. There's so much that we can talk about and there's so much wisdom and really just, I think, lessons that will be valuable to share in, in on so many different facets, whether that be leadership, time management, or just being a great human being. Um, I do just want to say thank you. I, I'm so grateful to have you in my life and and to have you as somebody that I, I can lean on when I need advice or learn from when I, I need wisdom or grow when I need to develop. Chris Maddox, you're, you're a true, just amazing human being. Thank you and uh, really appreciate you being on the show today. 
Thanks, Billy. It's absolutely mutual. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.